Good morning. Thank you for joining us in worship today. If you don't know me, my name is Pastor John, and I'm glad you're here with us. And what we've been doing for, um, I guess since, <laughs> I guess last September, and almost finished, we will end before the end of the year, we've been going through the Gospel of Mark. And today we're in Mark 15, verses 40 through 47. And this is a passage that's about the death, but mostly the burial of Jesus Christ. And you may look around up here, you're like, you just talked about a Christmas market, there's Christmas trees. Why on earth are you talking about Christ dying and being buried? It's Christmas time. Why are we spending time talking about sad things like death and people being buried in darkness? Why spend time on that? And, and I understand some of that, but I also think it's actually very appropriate to talk about that. Because at Christmas, we're celebrating the coming of Jesus Christ. And that is great, wonderful news. But it's not uh, good news unless there's some bad news that makes it necessary. Unless there's a reason that Christ comes, there's not really something we have to celebrate. But we do celebrate his coming because he did come in a time of darkness, a time that we needed him. And this idea of uh, Christmas... Uh, and yet there's still being something sad there. I think people recognize that. I think everyone recognizes that there's an element of Christmas that makes it a joy because it's this dark time of year. It's winter. It's the, you know, there's less daylight. There almost seems to be this common knowledge that there's something, just a little something sad or melancholy about Christmas that the hope of the holiday meets. After all, many songs tell us to, as reminders, we need to, we're supposed to be happy or have yourself a merry little Christmas. It's reminding us that we should feel this way. I was also struck by several Christmas carols. Some of the Christmas carols that are sung during this time of year are actually written in what they call the minor key. So they sound kind of sad compared to the more uplifting type of songs. Some of those minor key ones are We Three Kings or What Child Is This? Or one I thought about was, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. And just look at the first few words of, of this Christmas carol that people sing during this time of year. O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, okay. And ransom captive Israel. Christmas, we're singing about people being in captivity. And then look, that mourns in lonely exile here. There's some people mourning now until the Son of God appear. It's this very sad message and situation, but the hope comes because the Son of God is here. These songs speak about how the coming of Christ is a light that cuts through the darkness, that cuts through the bad. So at this morning, when we look at our passage, it is a very dark moment, absolutely. But in this darkness, this time between Christ's death and his resurrection, we're also going to see the light of hope. We're going to see examples of faithfulness and courage in this moment. These examples will teach us that when life is hard, we should live faithfully and courageously for our Lord. And the reason we're able to do that is because Jesus was faithful and courageous first. So if you're not already there, please turn to Mark chapter 15. You could use the blue Bible and seat back in front of you, or we'll also put the words up on the screen. And once you are there, Mark 15, verse 40, I'd ask that if you are able, you please stand to honor the reading of God's word, and then follow along. I'll read our passage for today. I'm going to be reading from the English Standard Version, Mark 15, big 15, starting in little, verse 40. 
the passage just talked about Jesus dying, and verse 40 says, There were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James the younger and of Joseph and Salome. When he, meaning Jesus, was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him. And there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. Verse 42, and when evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died. And summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. And Joseph bought a linen shroud and taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Verse 47, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. Let's pray. Lord, this passage is not about a pleasant moment. It's about a moment of darkness and sadness. But it reminds us, Lord, that even in times where we feel we should be happy and joyful, we also can have these moments of darkness and sadness. I pray, God, that when we're there, we would be reminded of your truth in your word today. Help us to see, Lord, these examples of faithfulness and courage. May they inspire us to live with faith and courage as well. Not from our own strength, God, but because your son showed that faith and courage first by going to the cross to die for our sins. I pray that he may be the one we focus on today. He may be the one who motivates and empowers our faith and courage for his glory. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. You may be seated. Before we dive into this passage, let's just talk a little bit more about kind of the context, what's happening here. If you were here last week, we talked about Jesus dying on the cross. So Jesus is dead, and this passage is about after that and him being buried, placed in a tomb. And imagine what this would have felt like for Jesus' followers, those who cared about him, those who had been supporting him. They believed that Jesus was the Son of God. And this incarnation, the Son of God come to earth, has appeared to them to have failed. It seems that this Messiah, this rescuer they thought was coming, that his mission has ended in crushing defeat. Jesus' closest followers, his 12 disciples, all fled when he was arrested. They're gone at this moment, and we might criticize them, but they were shocked that this was happening. They fully expected that Jesus would come into the city of Jerusalem and that everything would fall down before him, that he would take over the whole place right now. And in their defense, this, they were kind of used to Jesus doing whatever he wanted, they were used to winning. They were used to uh, things going well for them, people coming to know Jesus. They'd seen him do amazing miracles, feed thousands of people, expecting victory. And that's not what happened. 
So in this moment, his followers are full of doubt and fear. It's this dark moment. But in this moment, we see these examples of hope. Not from his disciples, not from those we've spent all this time with who we would expect to see a hope from, but instead we see it from some women and also from a man named Joseph of Arimathea. And if you've been here as we've been going through Mark, I've sometimes brought up the very technical term that scholars use of a Mark sandwich, which is the idea that it starts talking about one story, then there's another one, and then it goes back to the first story. So first, second, back to the first. And here may be the last Mark sandwich in the gospel. We'll start talking about the women, then it turns to Joseph, and then it goes to the women again. But I'm going to look at each story, each part individually. And so what do we learn here? Well, the first thing we learn is that these women were faithful. If you're using the sermon note sheet, that's first blank. The women were faithful. Again, we see that at the beginning and at the end of this passage. And what I really love about how Mark puts this together is when he describes what's happening to Jesus, from him being arrested to his trials to going to the cross, there is nobody supporting him. He is absolutely alone as he heads toward his death to save us. But here, after his death, as soon as he's dead, Mark kind of widens our view a little bit and shows us that while Jesus felt alone, in many ways was alone, there were people who were supporting him. Verse 40 tells us that as he's on the cross, there were also women looking on from or watching from a distance, from afar. And this idea of them looking on from a distance or from afar is probably fulfilling more of what the Old Testament said about this coming Messiah. Psalm 38 speaks about someone who seems to be dying. And it says, my heart throbs, my strength fails me, the light of my eyes, it is gone from me. My friends and companions stand aloof from my plague. My nearest of kin stand far off. So it's another moment of what's happening at the crucifixion here. But for these women, they used to serve Jesus closely, but now he's far away. He's been condemned, cursed by God for our sin. But our passage in verse 40 has an interesting word here. It says, look, there were these women, and then there's the phrase, among whom. So he's going to bring out a couple people who were here, but there was more than just these few here. Later in verse 41, you can see toward the bottom, it says there were also many other women. So there's this group, I don't know how many it was, but there's this group of women who are watching and supporting him as he is on the cross. Some of the other gospels tell us who some of those were, but let's look at the women who are particularly mentioned here in our passage. The first is Mary Magdalene, Mary Magdalene. Now, Magdalene wasn't her last name like we would understand a last name. It was just talking about where she was from. She was from a city named uh, Magdala, so Mary Magdalene, Mary from the city of Magdalene, which was on the Sea of Galilee on the western shore. Now, Mary Magdalene, there's a lot of speculation about her. There's a lot of myths about her. What we know for sure from Scripture is that she was healed from being possessed by seven demons we know that she was a faithful follower of Jesus and that she was one of the first to see him after he was raised from the dead. She wasn't married to Jesus. There's no evidence Jesus was ever married. Rather, she's an example of a faithful woman. So she's one who's here. Another one who's here is Mary, the mother of James the Younger or James the Less and of Joseph or Joseph. 
Perhaps this is the mother of one of Jesus' disciples. He had two that were named James, and maybe it's that one's mother. Or uh, maybe it's referring there to Jesus' own mother, because there was the disciple James, but also Jesus had a half-brother named James and a half-brother named Joseph. The reason I say that is because in the Gospel of Mark earlier, we read this. Some people talking about Jesus say, is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and the brother of James and Joseph, and also brothers Judas and Simon? So maybe this is referring to her. We don't know for sure. And then in our text, the last woman mentioned is a woman named Salome, who may be the mother of two of his other disciples, James and John. We don't know for sure, but the main point Mark is trying to make is that there were many women who served and followed Jesus. As verse 41 says, when he was in Galilee, the northern part of Israel, these women followed him, ministered to him. There were also many other women who came up with him from Jerusalem. And this fleshes out so much about who Jesus is and what his ministry was like. I know growing up in the church, and maybe if you grew up in church settings, you would see pictures of Bible stories, and it's always Jesus and his 12 male disciples following him around everywhere he goes. And that's, this verse and others inform us, was really not what the situation was like. Yes, those 12 were really close to him. He certainly pulled private settings, but there were other people traveling with them, including at least some number, he calls it many other women, also followed Jesus. They followed him. They listened to his teaching. Some gospels tell us some of them who had wealth used it to help meet some of Jesus's needs. As he ministered to others, they ministered to and served him. They came from the region of Galilee and came with them on this long journey to Jerusalem. Another passage that talks about them is in Luke, Luke chapter 8. It says of Jesus, he went through cities and villages proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. And the 12 were with him, his 12 disciples, and also some women who had been healed from evil spirits and infirmities. One of them, here she is, Mary, called Magdalene, from whom seven demons have gone out. Luke also mentions here, uh, Women we haven't met, a woman named Joanna, another named Susanna. But then look what he says. He says, and many others who provided for them out of their means. But perhaps most importantly for our passage is that these women follow Jesus to the end. They're watching his crucifixion from the distance, but they're not absent. They are there with him. If we put all the Gospels together, we find out only one of his disciples is there at the crucifixion. Only the disciple John is there, one out of 12 of them. And it's these faithful women who pick up that slack. And their faith in Jesus staying with him is rewarded because it is these women who are the first to see Jesus after he has been raised from the dead three days later. If we jump to the end of our passage, verse 47, it's that other side of the sandwich, and we see Mary Magdalene and also this Mary, the mother of Joseph, continuing to follow Jesus. They, they watch to see where he is buried. The idea is they just stood there the whole time looking at him on the cross, and then when Joseph came, got him down, buried him, they watched where he took him and where he, Jesus was placed. And this is setting up what's going to happen next week when we talk about Jesus' resurrection. These women have had their eyes on Jesus the whole time. They know where he went. They saw him die, 
and they will see him alive again. They're qualified witnesses of his resurrection because they were eyewitnesses the whole time. They know where he was placed. They didn't make a mistake and go to a tomb that was empty and then spread a false story. No, they saw where Jesus went. But for today, I find these women wonderful examples of faithfulness in dark times. This man, Jesus, who they followed, loved, and supported, has just, is being murdered by the authorities, yet they still stood by him. It's a reminder and encouragement to me of the faithful role women have played in the church, in Christianity, since the very beginning. Unlike many other faiths in the ancient world, women have been essential to the church. Women have always been the majority of those who make up the church. So my sisters in Christ who are here, you should never feel like you are second-class citizens because Jesus values women and he values them in his church. How can we then model this kind of faithfulness? How can we faithfully follow Jesus today? Well, Anishita, I have three like application points we get from this text and also some of those other ones that I read. And I'll take it on and off the screen a couple times as I talk through them. Um, and this is for all of us. These are things all of us can do. But particularly, we see this reflected in these women here. So how can we faithfully follow Jesus? Well, one way, like these women, is we can use our resources to help others. We can use our resources to help others. We can give to those who are need in need and also support those who are in ministry and serving. Pastor Tom talked about a way to do that through uh, this Lottie Moon Christmas offering earlier today. These women we read about gave what they had to support Jesus's work and enabled him to focus on what he was called to do. In 1 Peter, he writes this. He says, as each of us has received a gift, we should use it to serve one another as good stewards, as good managers of God's varied grace. What God gives us, he gives us so we can use it to serve others. Friends, we can use our money, our time, our talents, our abilities to serve others and support the work of his church. Another way to faithfully follow Jesus that these women model for us is by supporting one another. And here I'm moving away from kind of that financial idea of support and that more emotional support, being there for someone, especially in difficult times. And it, I, I think, I'm speaking generally, but I, it seems to me at least that women are often better at this than men are. After all, we have a perfect example here. Jesus had 12 male followers, 11 of them booked it out of here, but these women are there with him. They're putting into practice what Paul would write in the book of Galatians, to bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. And just think of it for yourself. If you're feeling alone or discouraged, there are a few things as, as wonderful and encouraging as other believers, other followers of Christ in there to support and encourage you, to empathize with you, to, to listen, to understand, to support you. Not force you to do something, but to be there for you when you need them. That is a way we can faithfully follow Christ. And what's a, a third way we can follow Christ that these women put into practice? It's being involved in ministry. They were a part of what Jesus was doing. Now, the Bible does talk about the different roles that men and women have in the church, and talking about that is well the scope of where 
to go today. But just because that's true, it doesn't mean that women should not be involved in any kind of ministry. There's great work for women to do in God's kingdom. They can reach other women, that there's those who are needy who need help. They can be involved in mission work, telling others who do not know Jesus about him, and much more they can do. One example that I think is great is from the book of Romans. Paul writes to them, and he says, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, who's a servant of the church. And look what he tells them to do. You should welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints. You should receive her well and help her in whatever she may need from you. Financially support her because she has been a patron of many and of myself as well. So for all of us, a way to faithfully follow Jesus is by using the resources that we have to support others emotionally, also to serve in ministry as we are able. That's what we see in the lives of these women. But they're not the only positive example in this passage. So there's these women, but there's also man Joseph of Arimathea. The women were faithful, and Joseph of Arimathea showed courage. He showed courage. Now remember, Jesus is up on the cross, and the way the Romans normally dealt with someone on the cross, on crosses, is they left them there for days as a warning to people, don't go against the Romans, this will happen to you. They'd leave them up there for days, and then when they finally got really bad, they would take them down and throw the body into a common mass grave, really probably near a garbage dump. The problem was this wasn't what the Old Testament said that God's people, the Jews, were to do with those dead. It was them that those who died uh, on a cross or hanging in the air were supposed to be buried that same day. We see Deuteronomy 21, verses 22 and 23. It says, if a man has committed a crime punishable by death, if he is put to death, you hang him on a tree, then his body shall not remain all night on the tree, but you shall bury him the same day. For a hanged man is cursed by God. We looked at that to talk about how Jesus had God's curse placed on him. So he's not to be on the tree, so you shouldn't defile your land that the Lord your God is giving you. And if someone was a faithful Jew, they would want to bury their relative or their friend. The problem was that, our text says, it's the day before the Sabbath day. It's the day of preparation. And on the Sabbath day, the Jews are not supposed to do any work. So this needs to happen quickly. They need to get Jesus buried. He died on a Friday, and then the next day was the Sabbath. And for the Jews, the next day started when the sun went down. So they needed to get him buried before then. And the man who steps up to this is a man named Joseph of Arimathea. He's a respected, a, a prominent, honorable member, and this is so interesting, of the council. The council are those group of Jewish religious leaders who made the decision to have Jesus killed earlier that day. And so it seems that Joseph did not agree with that decision and that Jesus had some people on that council who supported him. Joseph thought Jesus was who he said he was. One pastor wrote this, the Jewish council sought Jesus' death when he was alive, but now one of them shows allegiance to him after his death. 
It's a testament to how this is a true story. If you were making this story up, you wouldn't say, well, somebody who was on the body who put Jesus to death then asked for his body in order to bury him. That, that doesn't make sense. But here now we meet this man, Joseph. He's introduced now because of his key role. He had high standing, and that gave him access to the Roman governor, Pilate. Uh, his name, it says Joseph of Arimathea. That's the town he was probably from. We don't know exactly where it is. But what we do know is that Joseph is said to be waiting for, looking for the kingdom of God. He is longing for when God's Messiah will come, when God himself will reign and rule over his people. He is prepared for God's Messiah, his savior, his king. He was prepared for Jesus when Jesus came. That, that phrasing of looking for the kingdom of God, it reminded me of someone we sometimes talk about at Christmas. After Jesus was born, his parents brought him to the temple where there was a man named Simeon. We read in Luke 2, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. This man was righteous and devout. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. He's also waiting for when God's people will be comforted, when God's kingdom will come. Like Joseph in our passage, they are men who know God, and they have a heart for him. They long for when his reign will be established, when all wrongs will be righted and true peace will reign. In our passage, though, we're talking about Joseph. Joseph seems to be a secret disciple. He's kept his faith hidden, but in this moment, he shows courage. He boldly goes before the governor, Pilate, to ask for Jesus' body. We don't know what he was doing when Jesus was on trial. Maybe he wasn't even there. Maybe he tried to speak up. Maybe he just kept it to himself. We don't know. But this is the moment where he goes public with his faith. He takes courage, gathers it up, and boldly goes to claim Jesus. And just think about how much of a risk this would have been for him. He's coming before Pilate, who just ordered Jesus dead. He's saying, yes, I know and am associated with this condemned criminal that you just killed. It would, would have been dangerous for him. He would have probably ended up on one of the Romans' lists. It might have been dishonorable for his family. If other Jews saw him, heard about it, they could have him arrested. They could confiscate his wealth. He could have been killed too. And what's really remarkable is we know who Jesus is. We know what's going to happen in the story. Joseph, it doesn't seem that he does. Jesus is dead at this moment, and nobody seems to be expecting that he's coming back. Yet even though Jesus is dead, Joseph still thinks this Jesus is worth following. He's worth losing my reputation for, and if it comes to it, he's worth losing my life for. And even though we've never met him before, he's the only follower of Jesus who is bold enough to be identified with him after his death. There's nothing in it for him, but it seems that his affection and love for Jesus overwhelmed any fear that he had. The book of Proverbs says that the fear of man can lay a snare, it can keep us trapped, but whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. This is what Joseph did. He rather than being afraid of man. And this is the courage that we need for dark times. One pastor, J.C. Ryle, I liked how he 
pointed these, these two separate reactions to Jesus. He said, there are others who had honored and confessed our Lord when they saw him working miracles, but Joseph honored him and confessed himself a disciple when he saw Jesus, a cold, blood-sprinkled corpse. Others had shown love to Jesus while he was speaking and living, but Joseph showed love when Jesus was silent and dead. This is the courage that Joseph takes. Now, our, our passage goes on to say what happens here. Pilate is surprised to hear this. He's surprised that Jesus has died so soon. We talked last week that crucifixions could sometimes go for days, so it's only been a few hours, so he's surprised about that. He needs an inspection to confirm this. The other gospels tell us that uh, the guards decided to make the crucifixions go quicker, so they broke the legs of the other two people crucified with Jesus to kind of hasten their deaths. But when they got to Jesus, he was already dead. It's kind of what we talked about last week. Jesus was in control, and he was in control when he died. So Pilate, he asked the centurion who we met before, who was there supervising the crucifixion. He asked him if Jesus was dead. And we've already read the crucifixion, the centurion, I'm sorry, he saw it happen. It says, when the centurion, the one who stood facing him, saw that in this way he breathed his last, that Jesus was dead, he said, truly, this was the Son of God. And maybe in, in this moment in our passage, there's a little hint of what Jesus' work is going to do. Because here's Joseph, an honored and respected Jew, coming before Pilate, and then Pilate also summons this Gentile, non-Jew centurion, and both of them believe that Jesus is who he says he is. Maybe it's looking ahead to when Jews and Gentiles will come together in God's church. But the main point Mark is making in this passage is he wants us to understand that Jesus is dead. Uh, I don't know why my mind went to a line from The Wizard of Oz. He's not merely dead, but really most sincerely dead. Look how the passage makes it clear here. Pilate was surprised to hear he should have already died. And summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, then he granted the corpse to Joseph. It's not just being repetitive just for the sake of being repetitive here. He's trying to make a point. Jesus is dead. Everyone knew it. It is very sad. It is sad, Jim. He, he didn't fall into a trance. He didn't pass out. No, he is dead, and everyone knew it. But finally, in this moment, Joseph's courage is rewarded. Pilate shows favor to him. Pilate didn't have to do this. What the Romans normally did was leave the bodies up there. But in this moment, for whatever reason, he grants the corpse to Joseph. And then Jesus is buried. John's gospel will tell us it's not only Joseph, but also another member of the council who uh, valued Jesus named Nicodemus who joined him. But whether it was one or both of them, they come together, they get a linen shroud, they take Jesus down, and they place him in a tomb. They say a tomb that had been cut out of the rock. So it was a cave that had been made as a tomb. Inside the cave, there would have been some benches and then on the walls, there would have been little, I guess you can call them cubbies there. And the way it would work is they would place a body on the bench. They would close the tomb and leave. They'd come back a long time later. And at that point, they would take what was left, the bones, and they'd put them in a box that they would put in the little cubbies in the wall. So they lay him on this bench for when they'll come back again to put the bones away. 
where did this happen? Some people want to know. There's, uh, there's two sites that sometimes people say uh, could be where it was. Uh, one is a more traditional site and probably more likely, but there's a big church on top of it. The other's a very pretty place to go. It looks really nice, but there's no evidence that that's where it happened. So they set Jesus down. They roll a stone over the entrance. And before we move on from Joseph, this is once again some loving courage that he's showing here. Because he's taking time to bury Jesus. And according to the Jewish law, that made him ceremonially defiled. He would have to have himself cleansed. The very next day is Passover, one of their biggest feasts of the year. But he still is willing to go through that extra inconvenience because he thought loving his Lord was worth it. And he places Jesus in what seems to be his own family's tomb, which is interesting because it would have been very expensive to have that type of tomb. I mean, even today, if you cut out a cave in the rock for a grave, that would cost a lot of money, probably even more so then. But in this, we see more Old Testament predictions about Jesus fulfilled because they said there that the coming Savior, he would make his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death. So he was killed as a criminal, killed with the wicked, but buried like a rich man. Joseph just had a small part to play in this. And his example of courage should be an encouragement, a challenge to us. A challenge to us, will we have courage for the Lord? What does it look like to have courage for the Lord? There's lots of ways we could talk about it. Maybe one way is, will you have the courage, like Joseph, to confess that you know him, to come to know him? to proclaim your faith in him, to have the courage to say, yes, I am a follower of God. Uh, The British pastor Charles Spurgeon, he put it this way, you will have to confess Christ before many witnesses. When you're in heaven, you will say, yes, I know Jesus before thousands, millions of people. So why not begin to do so at once? What is the hardship of it? It will come easier to you. It will bring a larger blessing. It will be sweeter in your recollection afterwards than if you keep on postponing it. Have the courage to come to know Jesus. Maybe you've been here, you've been thinking about it, processing things. Is is this Christianity something I want to do? Take a step from Joseph. Yes, come. Have the courage to say, yes, I want to know Jesus. I want to be known as a part of his people. Another way you could have courage is by following him in baptism there. Baptism is a public profession of our faith. We we do it right here before the church say, yes, I know Jesus. I am proclaiming my faith in him. That's a way to have courage. I realize it's awkward to be in front of people there, but it's modeling Christ. It's a way to have courage in following him. What's another way to have courage there? Another way would be to join with his people, to join with his people in a church, whether it's our church or another church, joining a church, associating yourself with God's people. We're not here to entertain you. We're here to equip you to fulfill God's great commission. And the best way for that to happen is by being a part of his people. Yes, there's a risk joining a church. People will disappoint you and let you down, absolutely. But Jesus died for his church. He died to bring people together, a new community that knows him. Maybe the act of courage you can take for the Lord is you feel God wants you to serve him in a different way. Maybe he's calling you to full-time ministry like those missionaries we looked at here or some other way of, of serving the Lord. God's word calls us to turn from sin, to know Jesus, and live courageously for him. And it gives us great encouragement to do that.
This verse we read earlier is, have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened. Do not be dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. God is with you. So will you take courage for the Lord? Whatever step that is, if it's coming to know Christ, if it's following him in baptism, joining his people, maybe it's serving him some type of ministry, maybe it's just leaving your reputation, your popularity, your comfort and convenience behind to let others know that you are a Christian, to tell others about your faith. I'm not saying you should be obnoxious about it, but clearly communicate the hope that is in you. I know Christ. One of his disciples, Peter, would later get this, and he says, in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. Moments of darkness should not lead us to despair, but to faithful courage. And we should take hope because God will raise up the men and women that he needs for his purposes. He has not abandoned his work. And maybe he's raising up you to serve him. Now we're at the end of our passage. And what I could do is I could, have, I could stop there. If I did though, my conviction is that I wouldn't have preached a fully Christian sermon to you. I would have given you some examples to follow and then sent you out the door saying, good luck, be like those people. But the truth is there's a reason why these women and why Joseph were able to do what they did. There's a reason why we can be confident that we can live faithfully and courageously. What is that reason? Well, that reason is because Jesus was faithful and courageous. The women were faithful, Joseph was courageous because Jesus was faithful and courageous first. I said a little bit about this earlier, but again, I am, I'm so moved and, and in awe of how Mark, who wrote this book, put this part together. Because he's very clear here. These examples of faithfulness and courage, they only come after the death of Christ on the cross. They don't come before, but they come after. The actions of Joseph and these women is only possible because their lives have been changed by Jesus Christ. Because of the death of Christ, Joseph has to move from being a secret disciple to one who has bold courage. He sees Jesus die, and he realizes what the angels in heaven sing in the book of Revelation. He realizes, worthy is the lamb, worthy is Jesus who was slain to receive power, wealth, wisdom, and might, honor, and glory, and blessing. He realized Jesus is worthy of all, and that what he has done should change my life. Friends, anything could happen to us, any pain, any suffering, any loss, and we should still faithfully and courageously follow Jesus because he is worthy of it. He doesn't desire to have secret disciples, but people who have been changed by his power. One, Pastor Kent Hughes puts it this way, Jesus' death is elevating. His courage begets. It produces our courage. His dedication, our dedication. His sacrifice, our sacrifice. There is no more elevating example in history. 
Jesus was faithful. He was faithful to live a perfect life, a life on earth without sin, without rebellion against God. And he was courageous to go to the cross even though he knew exactly what would happen to him there. We talked last week about what it meant for him to be separated from God, to bear the curse, the punishment for our sin, our wrong. He knew that that was happening and he still courageously went there. So when we look at our lives, our hope to live faithfully or courageously isn't in us, but it's in him who has done it first for us. He died, he faced death. We most likely will face death too, but if we know him, we will rise with him. Does your life reflect this kind of faithfulness and courage? If it doesn't, then ask yourself, do I really know Jesus? Have I turned away from sin and trusted in his work on my behalf that he died and rose again to save me? Have I called out to him? Have I come to know him and, and sought him? Do I know Jesus? If you don't, then please talk to me about it or someone else about how you can turn from sin and believe and trust in Christ. Friends, my goal with this sermon this morning was to give you hope for Christmas, to give you courage in the darkness. I, I feel like I say this a lot, but I, I don't know each and every problem that every person in this room is dealing with in this moment. I know some things that are going on. I know there's health concerns. I know that there's difficult family dynamics. I know there's issues with schooling and with um, maybe even discipline issues in the family or just trouble relating to relatives. Maybe there's great sickness in you or in a relative. I know that all of this is going on, but, and I know that those moments can be dark and, and overwhelming and infinitely discouraging. But friends, in this dark moment, when these people believed that the savior of the world was dead and gone, there is still, they were still able to live with faith and courage. Why were they able to do it? Not because they were great and amazing, but because what Jesus did points to a person and a power that is greater than all the darkness in the world. And what they're about to see is a completely unexpected reversal where Christ will raise from this, the dead victorious over it. Paul writes in the book of Romans that the same thing happens to us if we know Christ. We were buried with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Christ was raised to give us hope, to save us, to give us the ability to live with faith and courage, not alone, but also so we can live for him. The truth is that light always overcomes the darkness. Think of uh, stars in the sky. The stars are there whether we see them or not. Perhaps there can be dark clouds that roll over them, but the stars are still there. The clouds do not defeat the stars. They do not destroy them. They just obscure the view for a little bit. That was an example I heard from uh, the late pastor Tim Keller, and this is what he said about that. After giving that example, he said, there is light and high beauty forever beyond evil's reach. Why? Because evil fell into the heart of Jesus on the cross. The only darkness that could have destroyed us forever fell into his heart. Jesus was faithful and courageous to go to the cross so that he could bring us to God, so that he could enable us to live 
for him. My prayer for you is that this Christmas, when inevitably those moments of sadness and melancholy, wherever they come from, when they come in to your mind, that that darkness would instead turn your thoughts to Christ. That reflecting on the fact that he went to death and rose to give life, may that give you hope. May that lead you to trust him and to praise him because he alone is worthy.